you'll turn to the book of 1 Samuel, that's where we're going to begin our study this Lord's Day, and Lord willing, we're going to follow up that study uh, as we walk through 1 Samuel with a study of 2 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel comes immediately after the book of Ruth, and is essentially a continuation of the story of God's grace and provision and making the way ultimately for the Messiah for God's people. And if you were here with us when we studied through the book of Ruth, you may remember that Ruth comes just after the book of Judges, and that tells us a lot about the time of Ruth and a lot about the time of 1 Samuel. Uh, this was a godless time for the people of Israel. Uh, God had brought them into the promised land, uh, but as the generations had gone on, they had forgotten about God. They were not following God anymore, and this was a godless time. And so that picture we have, that setting in the book of Ruth, is very much the same setting we find at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Now, as we look to this, we're reminded of what we read in Judges 21-25, at the end of, book of, of the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel... And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this is the setting when Samuel is born. Now, what we find in the books of First and Second Samuel really is the story of King David. But in order to understand King David's story, you have to understand Samuel's story. You know, in order to understand Samuel's story, you have to begin with his birth and his mother Hannah. And that's what we're going to look at today. But I want us to begin by understanding why it is we should look at books like this. You know, for some, they look at First and Second Samuel and the Old Testament and think that uh, this has very little to do with us today. Why go back and study these books? And primarily, there's two reasons I want us to walk through First and Second Samuel. Uh, the first is because the story of King David is the story that we need to know for God's people today. David is a central figure in the New Testament. There's 60 references to David in the New Testament. And it's important for us to understand David's story so we can rightly understand and appreciate what God does through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is our history as God's people, and we need to understand it. But along with that, we also find that this is extremely applicable to us today. You know, when we read verses like Judges 21-25 that tell us everyone did what was right in his own eyes, that's our culture today. Now, that's the world we live in, and that's what we find in this book. And not only that, we find stories of marital struggle and conflict. We find wayward children who are pursuing a life of sin. We find corrupt religious leaders and deceitful politicians we find attempts to cover and hide sin with more sin and more sin and more sin. We find lies, deception, adultery, murder, power struggles, violence, war, and unrest. Now, these are the stories we find on the front page of our newspaper today. But these are also the stories we find in the pages of First and Second Samuel. But what we also find here is the hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The hope for those who will place our trust in God. And so I hope that as we walk through these books that we might better understand how to deal with the world we live in today and what it is that people so desperately need. It's what they needed during Samuel's day and David's day. It's what they need in our day to turn and to put their hope in the gospel of Jesus for them and the coming Messiah for us and the Messiah who has come. So with that introduction, we're going to look today at 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go down through verse 20, 
And if you would, out of reverence for God's word, if you're able, if you would stand as I read God's word for us today. Because this is the holy, inspired word of God that he has handed down to us throughout generations. And this is what it says. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year after year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, the, o Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go about being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm not a woman. Uh, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've not, uh, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They arose early in the morning, and they worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. If you would pray with me. Father, help us today to understand better how these ancient words apply to our lives today. And help us to trust in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Several years ago, I read about a, a book that had come out with the following title. What's the least I can believe and still be a Christian? So if you like to aim low, this is the book for you. 
the author, who by the way is a pastor, essentially makes the argument that, that pastors and churches and believers, that, that we've just set the bar way too high and that, that people can't reach it. So if we just set the bar really, really low, then people would be more faithful. He argues, for example, that biblical inerrancy, the belief that God's word is inspired and without error, that this belief is actually detrimental to authentic faith. He argues against a literal, eternal hell and against the claim that repentance and faith in Jesus are necessary for salvation. And so the the problem, fundamentally, with this book, of course, is what the Bible actually says, and especially what Jesus himself says. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And yet this author makes a very different claim. But of course, the the loophole here is that if you make the claim that God's word isn't actually true, then you can just kind of pick and choose what you want from God's word. And when you come to passages that conflict with your worldview, then you can just simply say, well, that's not really what took place. That's not really what was said. And therefore, like this author, you can set the bar as low as you want to. And you can believe as little as you want and still claim to be a Christian. Now, this proposal is absurd. I mean, think about what it would be today in our culture if a man was to ask a woman to marry him. And if that woman's response was, well, well, what's the absolute minimum I need to do to be your wife? Give me the list first, and then I'll consider if I really want to go into this arrangement or not. That's not usually how that works, hopefully not how it's worked for any of you this morning. No, when we think about a proposal, we think about a commitment. And when we think about coming to Christ, we think about a commitment. And what we learned in our study of the book of Hebrews is that in order for us to run the race of faith, in order for us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that requires a great commitment. It requires us to persevere. It requires us to endure, especially through troubling times in life when we suffer. And we're reminded of that as we begin our study of 1 Samuel. As we find a picture here of this woman that we're introduced to, Hannah, who who has a very difficult situation in life, who's surrounded by difficulties, and yet her trust, her focus is on the Lord. And so today as we walk through these first 20 verses, I want us to look at Hannah. There's a number of people listed here. There's some very unusual names, but we're just going to focus primarily on Hannah's story. And as we do, a very simple outline I put there before you today. We're going to talk about Hannah's plight, Hannah's plea, and God's provision. And so we'll start there in verse 1 with Hannah's plight, where our introduction to Hannah comes to an introduction to her husband, Elkanah. And we read here that Elkanah had two wives. Now it's likely in this scenario, both because of the order in which they're given and because of the circumstance we find them in, that chances are that he married Hannah first. But as we read, the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. She was barren. And in this culture, in this context, well, that was a big deal. That that meant that Elkanah's Uh, property and everything he owned would not be passed on to an heir that would go to another relative that meant that there wouldn't be financial security for his family there were all types of cultural issues because of this but another thing that culturally would take place at times like this is a man then would take another wife and that's where we find polygamy in the bible now you need to understand when you find polygamy in the bible this is never something that comes from the hand of god 
This is not something God endorses. This is not something God suggests. In fact, when we see polygamy in the scripture, it often comes as a result of people not putting their trust in God and putting their trust in themselves. And that seems to be the, the issue with Elkanah. He married Hannah. The scripture clearly says he loved Hannah, but Hannah couldn't have children. So like others before him that we read about in the Old Testament, he went and found another wife primarily for the sole sake of having children. So he married Peninnah, and she had sons and daughters. Now again, this is not a practice that God's word endorses. Some people who are critical of God's word today will say, well, what about polygamy in the Bible? Well, if you read about it and read the context, you never find this is something that God endorses. In fact, the very first time we find polygamy mentioned in the scripture comes not that long after the fall in Genesis chapter 4, verse 22, where Lamech, who was a descendant of Cain, is sinfully boasting about having multiple wives as well as boasting about killing a man. And so again, this is not something that God's word endorses. And yet, what we find in God's word are the true sinful stories of wicked people and how God uses those sinful wicked people for his glory. And that's the picture we have here of Elkanah and especially of Hannah. Because Elkanah's decision to enter into another marriage, well, that brought great strife into his family. And that's where we see Hannah's plight. The scripture tells us here that she was barren and she was mocked. And so Peninnah, who was the other wife of Elkanah, she would, verse 6, provoke her grievously and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now again, the scripture gives us some insight here to the relationship with Elkanah and Hannah and Elkanah and Peninnah. The chances are what we see in the scripture really clearly is that Elkanah, he, he loved Hannah. And that was probably very evident to Peninnah. And Peninnah was jealous of that love because we don't see anything in the scripture about his love for his second wife. And she was the one who was providing him with children. And so when it came time to go to the temple and to give out what would be sacrificed, Elkanah, her husband, was giving more to this barren wife, Hannah, than he was giving to her who had had all these children. And so there was rage and there was jealousy there. She probably felt insulted. Maybe she felt even a bit of shame here. And she took all of that out on Hannah. And so imagine what that was for Hannah. It was one thing to be barren in that culture. A barrenness then was viewed as a curse from God. And so when Hannah would go into the marketplace to buy food for her family, she would hear the whispers of people in the marketplace who would say, that there, there's Hannah. God's cursed her. Well, what wicked, evil thing did she do that God closed her womb? And she would bear this mockery and this scorn, and she couldn't escape it when she went home. Because when she went home, there's Peninnah with more mockery and more scorn. And this would have been overwhelming to her to the point that we read when they would go to make this sacrifice, a time that was supposed to be a time of celebration. For her, it was a time of grief, a time of mourning. She couldn't eat. She couldn't drink. She was overwhelmed with her grief and her suffering. And so that's the plight that we find her in. And her husband, well, he just wasn't much comfort. Now, this is a good lesson for us husbands in the room today. Uh, it is best to say nothing sometimes. And that's not what he did. And notice how he seeks to comfort his wife in verse 8. Am I not more to you than ten sons? <laughs> I mean, just again, th think about this in context, husbands. 
I mean, maybe you've had a situation before, uh, if you're married here this morning, where your wife, maybe she came home from work and she was upset about something. Uh, maybe she just had a rough day with the kids and she's wanting to tell you about it and she's just upset. Maybe there's all this stuff going on and she's pouring all this out in front of you. And imagine what it would be for you just to turn to her and say, I don't know why you're upset. You got me. Why could you ever be, why could you ever be saying, you married me. Am I not enough for you? Now, husbands, I'm not suggesting that you try this when you get home. But if you do, you might want to have a hard shield mask on your face and prepare to get popped. Because that's not how you bring comfort to your spouse. And yet that's exactly what Elkanah does here. Hannah's being mocked for her barrenness. She's being scorned. She, she is upset. She's anxious. She's overwhelmed. She's probably even asking herself, have I done something wrong? Have I done something where God has cursed me? And her husband says, well, you shouldn't be sad because you've got me. Well, that doesn't bring her any comfort at all. What Elkanah should have done if he said anything was he should have led his wife to trust in the Lord. But I think the indication from the scripture here is he didn't do that because he wasn't a godly man and a godly husband. Had he been a godly man and a godly husband when his wife couldn't have children, he wouldn't have gone out and married someone else. He would have gotten on his knees with his barren wife and he would have cried out with her to the Lord. But that's not what he does. And yet, even though he did not lead her to do this and he didn't lead her in this way, we see the strength of Hannah's faith because she does that. She does what she should do, and she pleads with the Lord. Which brings us to that second point, Hannah's plea. And so what we see here is that after all the sacrifices have been prepared and they've gone up to Shiloh, everybody's feasting and celebrating, but Hannah goes to the temple to pray. Now verse 11 says, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of the servant of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, for many of us, we might read this and we kind of think about this as, as a desperation prayer. And we see people make desperation prayers all the time. Maybe you have made a desperation prayer when you're just in a situation that you can't get out of. And people kind of make, you know, Lord, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. Or, or Lord, if you'll just take care of this, then, then I'll, never, uh, I'll never cuss again. I'll never drink again. If, if you'll just get me out of this, then I'm going to give 10% for the rest of my life to you. And we make kind of these desperation pleas, uh, kind of bargaining with God to get us out of a mess. And what we often find is that when somebody prays that way, they usually don't do the thing they said they would do because it was just in a moment of desperation. But I don't believe that's what takes place with Hannah here. Now, there's a very specific reason for her to pray the way that she prays because as she prays, she is essentially saying to the Lord, if you will give me a son, I will commit him to your service. And she makes a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, we read about it in number six, was a, a vow that would be made by someone for temporary service to the Lord. And so a Nazarite vow, uh, there were things in there, including uh, not shaving one's head, uh, abstaining from alcohol, even things like not touching a dead body. 
And these things were done in a way so that people, for example, them not cutting their hair, that they could see, well, this man's made a Nazarite vow. He has consecrated himself to the Lord. The most famous Nazarite in Hannah's day would have been Samson, the mighty warrior who slew so many Philistines and was the last judge of Israel before Samuel. If you know Samson's story, you know that he was born to the barren wife of Manoah. And so this likely would have happened in Hannah's lifetime, and she likely would have been familiar with it. And so in her mind, perhaps she's thinking that this is what it means to really consecrate someone to the Lord. This is what the barren wife of Manoah did when God gave her a child. This is what I'm going to do in my barrenness if God gives me a child. I'm going to commit this child and consecrate them to the Lord. And so essentially what she's saying to God is not give me a child that I can enjoy them and I can raise them and I can love them. No, she's saying, Lord, if if you give me a child, I'm going to give that child right back to you. Now, Understanding the context is different, the situation is different, but I do think there's something for us to learn here, especially as Christian parents today. We seem to not have a problem when it comes to committing our children to the Lord, as long as that means that things are going to go well for them and things are going to go easy for them. Well, we don't seem to struggle with the concept of saying, uh, Lord, I, I want to just dedicate my child to you and protect them and watch over them and care for them. We seem to do okay with that. We have a much harder time really letting go and saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to entrust my child to you. Understand that means you might take them to the other side of the planet, to the most dangerous place in the world to share the gospel. Lord, I'm going to entrust them to you, understanding that means that you may allow suffering in their life for for your good and for your glory. And so in those times, we, we want to kind of take things back, and we want to hold tightly to them. But the picture we see here of Hannah is one who's holding very loosely that's, that what she's asking God to give. And she's saying, God, if you give me a son, then that son will be yours, and that son will be consecrated to your service. She does this without the encouragement of her husband. She does this really without much encouragement initially from the priest Eli. Because notice Eli's response there in verse 12. He isn't much more help than Elkanah because he sees her praying and he thinks she's drunk. Now that might seem a little bit odd to us today, but that tells us a little bit about the context and the culture that Eli was in. One, we don't see Eli as this strong man of faith in the scripture, especially when we see how his sons behave and some other things that we'll find in 1 Samuel. But what we do see here likely is a picture of what he experienced at the temple during this day when people did things that were right in their own eyes. He probably saw Hannah and saw her mouth moving but didn't hear her words. And he probably thought she was drunk because there probably been a lot of people who come to the temple drunk. Because the experience he had had in this godless culture was that all kinds of wickedness was taking place at the temple. And we see that especially as we continue in our study with his sons. And so he's just looking at the culture he's in, and he's looking at Hannah, and he's imagining that she's doing the wicked things that everybody else is doing. But he finds out differently very quickly when Hannah says, no, her heart is broken, that she is anxious, that she is overwhelmed, that she is pouring out her heart before the Lord. She is pleading with God. She is praying to God. She's making this vow to God. And as Eli begins to understand that, well, then we get a picture of God's provision, which is our final point there in your outline. God's provision. 
Notice in verse 17, we see that Eli, as he now understands what's taking place, and Eli is the priest. Remember, the role of the priest was the mediator. They spoke to the people on behalf of God. They spoke to God on behalf of the people. And so we see here God using Eli in this situation to communicate to Hannah. And what he says to her is that God is going to answer her petition. Now notice he doesn't tell her great details. He doesn't tell her when that's going to happen. He doesn't tell her how that's going to happen. He just simply says, God's heard your prayer. God's going to answer your prayer. But that was enough for Hannah and her faith to have a total change in her countenance. Notice verse 18. Then the woman went away and ate and her face was no longer sad. Now think about the order of events here. Here is Hannah who has been mocked and scorned and suffering and grieving for years. She is overwhelmed. She goes to the temple. She pours out her heart before God. And at the very word that God has made a promise to her to answer her prayer, at that very word, her entire countenance changes. Now at this point, she's still barren. At this point, she doesn't have any kids. At this point, she's going to go back to her family and hear Peninnah mock her and scorn her. She's going to hear her husband's worthless advice tell her, am I not enough, more than enough for you? But her heart has changed here. Her countenance has changed. Why? Because she has the promise of God and she is holding on to the promise of God. She does not know how that promise will be fulfilled. She doesn't know when that promise will be fulfilled. But she is holding on to that promise. And friends, there is a lesson for us there. Because we grieve. And we struggle. And there are times when we find ourselves in hopeless situations that we can do nothing about. And as we seek to walk with God, we are mocked and we are scorned by an unbelieving world around us. We're surrounded by wickedness and by unrest. And we are tempted at times not to hope in God, not to trust in God. But what has God done for us? God has given us his word and he has given us his promise. And God is always faithful to keep his promises. We may not know how he's keeping them. We may not know when he's going to keep them. But we can trust that he indeed will keep them. So that when we mourn and when we suffer and when we grieve, we hold on to the promise of God who says, One day no more. No more grief. No more suffering. No more death. No more wickedness. No more unrest. One day no more. And we may cry out, Lord, when? How much longer? When's that coming? And we may not get an answer to that, but we know it is coming. And just as Hannah responded to the Lord and she went away and her face was no longer sad, we can do that same thing. And friends, this is not turn your frown upside down, that this is not prosperity theology and prosperity gospel. This is in the middle of our race when we find ourselves in the hardest part of the course, looking up to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and putting our hope and putting our trust in him and holding on to his promises because he is always faithful. And we see that picture here with Hannah. She goes home, and the scripture tells us here in verse 20, in due time... Due time. Notice again, we don't know how many months, how many weeks, we don't know how many years. But when it was time for God to move, God moved. And on his timetable, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from 
the Lord. And so what do we learn from this ancient text today? Well, we are reminded to hold on to the promises of God. And what has God promised us? He's promised us that our grief does not have the final word, but that he does. He's promised us that our circumstances, whatever they may be, do not have the final word that he does. He's promised us that he is absolutely faithful in a world of faithlessness. And so we can trust in him. And that the race is long and the race is hard, but he is faithful to get us across the finish line if we will put our trust in him. And so that's our invitation today. It is to put our trust in a God who's always faithful. And so we're going to do, or we're going to respond to that invitation in part by taking some time to worship. And we're going to sing all glory be to Christ. And then we're going to sing hopefully a familiar hymn to many of you. Great is thy faithfulness. Now what you may not know about that hymn is that uh, it was written by someone from Kentucky. A man named Thomas uh, Chisholm who was born in Franklin, Kentucky in 1866. Uh, he was a school teacher and he was a poet. And this was actually a poem that he wrote in response to Lamentations 3. Now, I've already preached one sermon, not going to preach another one, but there's a good sermon to be preached on Lamentations 3 because when you go to the book of Lamentations, what you find is likely the prophet Jeremiah there talking about a day of wickedness, a day of godlessness, and he is so overcome with grief that, that he describes God as a bear waiting around the corner to rip him to pieces. This is someone at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And yet in that place of grief and suffering and being surrounded by wickedness, we find one of the most hopeful passages in all of Scripture. As the writer there remembers God's faithfulness and calls on others to trust in God's faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And friends, that's a good word today. You might have barely got out of bed and got here today. You might be struggling this morning with sin. You might be struggling with anxiety. You might just be overwhelmed today. Again, this is Father's Day. And for some of you, this is a day to celebrate. And for others, this is a hard hard day and we need this reminder that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases that his mercies never come to an end and that they are new every morning and they are here for us today and so we're going to sing today about the faithfulness of our God we're going to sing today about the greatness and the glory of Christ so I'm going to pray for us and then Pastor Nick's going to come up and lead us as we respond to God's word through worship if you would pray with me Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. I stand here this morning as someone who has struggled to be faithful. And I'm surrounded by the saints this morning. And I'm sure they could give a very similar testimony of their ups and downs and their struggles. Lord, the Christian life so often feels like we're taking three steps forward and two steps back. That the race feels overwhelming. And it seems like the finish line is so far off in the distance at times. But Lord, you are faithful and we can trust in you. We see a picture in your word this morning of a woman who was overcome by her situation or circumstances, by her grief. And she saw her need to trust in you and did that. And Lord, you provided for her. 
So I pray that we would trust in you as well today and that we would see your sovereign hand at work as we put our trust, not in ourselves, but in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.